0: All right, brothers and sisters, we come today to Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount uh, takes up three chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. Um, the, the, the literature on this sermon is, is, is beyond comprehension. There's so much that has been written regarding the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you, it is very much possible to dive into the weeds and stay in the weeds. Um, so today what we're going to do is do an overview. Uh, I like to think in terms of a 30,000 foot view, overview, but I didn't think that what we're doing today is that 30,000 feet is quite high enough. Um, but then again, I was thinking about a satellite in space, and that's way too high of a level. No, I thought, I thought like a 60,000-foot spy balloon <laughs> level would give us the appropriate perspective. <laughs> I worked on that. <laughs> I was... Anyway. But my intent today is to give us a, a very high overview because it is true that oftentimes people get stuck in the weeds and then so doing, they miss the forest. But then in, in following weeks, we're not going to go in the weeds. Again, it, it's possible to just really, I could spend multiple years just in the Sermon on the Mount. No, we're going to take it down and we're going to handle, there's, there are six noticeable sections in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to do a sermon on each of the sections to get us through it in a relatively timely manner. Uh, because this is a, a key piece of teaching. Indeed, it's, one, it's the first of five narratives that Matthew includes. It's the first of the three major narratives that Christian theology really focuses on regarding Jesus' teaching. This sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount, and who has an idea, who knows where, who named it that? Anyone? It was named the Sermon on the Mount by Augustine, okay? So for 1,600 years, we've called it the Sermon on the Mount because of Augustine, okay? Um, so what we're gonna do today is look at the first two verses where he opens his mouth, and then at the last two verses when he closes his mouth. I thought those were the appropriate four verses for a sermon that's going to survey the whole of the thing. All right? Okay. So brothers and sisters, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and keep your finger ready 3 chapters over because we're going to look at the very end of Matthew chapter 7 and I'm going to transition seamlessly. Okay? All right. Matthew chapter 5 Verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not As their scribes. Brothers and sisters, even these four verses are the Word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus. We thank you for what these words teach. Help us in this message to orient ourselves so we can read it and understand it rightly. We ask for this in his mighty name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as I said in the introduction, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It is unquestionably the most famous of Jesus' protracted instructional episodes. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is so revered that oftentimes... It is almost extracted as a whole and separated from the rest of anything Jesus has to say. And there are a great many who really hunker down on some of what he says here and pay little to no regard for what he says outside of the sermon. They love the sermon that much. The Sermon on the Mount is so popular that even some non-believers like it. In the 19th century, for example, would you believe that Karl Marx, the father of communism, admired the Sermon on the Mount? In the 20th century, perhaps the most famous unbeliever who really, really, really admired the Sermon on the Mount was Gandhi in India. Non believers like it. In fact, as a chaplain in the army, I was encouraged to preach passages like it because it offends no one with religious sensibility. That's shocking. It's just morals. At least that's how it can be interpreted. There are great numbers of people who read these words and find in it the foundation of a social ethic. And so they, they look at some of what they look at what Jesus says here, and they become card-carrying pacifists. There are some who see in the in the opening words there, he sees the crowds, he sits down, and his disciples come to him, this bifurcation of the crowds and the disciples. So what what Jesus is presenting here is a higher ethic for not all of mankind, but for those of his people, specifically his clergy that view has been famous since aquinas that these this is an ethic that's for clergymen it's not for the laity you have some who think that what jesus is presenting here is the ethic for his kingdom which didn't come it's not going to happen until the millennium so this really doesn't matter or apply to us that's been around since the 19th century With its focus on poor and the underdog, you have some who find in it the basis for a liberation theology. Since the Reformation and the influence of Luther's teaching, you have a very large view in Protestantism that sees what Jesus is doing here is simply raising the stakes so high that It drives you to despair at your ability to keep God's law to point you to Jesus. You need to be saved. And this law ratchets it up to the nth degree so that you see how impossibly high the standard of God is so that you need Jesus. Now, all these views, there's there's like 36 different interpretations of what this is all trying to do and who it's for and not for. And what do we make of this? Well, my, my guiding principle, whenever I'm looking at a passage, especially a passage that is laden with potential controversy, uh, is, to, is to step back and look at the larger context. And then armed with the knowledge of the context, I then come back in and see how does any individual piece Fill in the context, or or in the case of, of making an argument, what is Matthew's argument? And then how does this sermon develop that or help establish the point he's trying to make? So, the first, I guess, point of this sermon is answering the question what is the Sermon on the Mount about? What is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount? Okay? Uh, Remember the occasion. At the end of chapter 4, it says great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And when we discussed that, we said that Matthew was essentially listing reference points on a map to highlight that the whole area, had been infected with Jesus' teaching. Jesus' fever was going on and he was the popular uh, rabbi of the day and people were following him from all over. And so Jesus, at this point, he does what he does so frequently. Jesus never, ever leaves a crowd Um, unchallenged. Jesus regularly goes out of his way to as soon as he amasses a crowd, he teaches them things that have the effect of separating wheat from chaff. What's this passage doing then as he's ratcheting up what he's been doing? Well, think about Matthew's point. We said that Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. He quotes the Old Testament pervasively. His his sentiments are Hebraic. He's he's very Jewish in his presentation. And his thrust, the thrust of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. That's Matthew's point. Jesus is the Messiah and we hear Messiah and because we have 1800 years of of church history we have we've lived in a post uh, romanticism laden era we think of him as just Messiah means savior And a savior is true, but savior is not enough of a concept to understand what is meant by Messiah, because a savior can be construed as simply someone who comes along, sees you in a bind, and and saves you. You're driving, you get a flat tire, and someone comes along and helps you, and they go along their way, and you're saved. You've met a savior. And that's the image that can come up when we call Jesus a savior in our day. Just someone, he's come, we were going to hell and he did something and, and he saved us, he rescued us. Whoo! thank you, Jesus. But that is not what was meant in the minds of the biblically informed first century folk. No, the Messiah is the Redeemer who rescues and then reigns as God's appointed ruler. So it's not enough that Jesus has snatched you out of the fires of hell or snatched you from the fires of hell. He doesn't just save you. He then rules. He reigns as God's ruler. So in other words, he's not just savior. He's Lord. This book then, in making its case as Jesus the Messiah, begins with Jesus being announced in verse one to be the son of who? The son of David. And then how does the book end in Matthew chapter 28? Jesus resurrected victorious sending out his apostles, having had, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So the book ends of the book, trumpet the authority of Jesus. So what is this sermon right here doing at the beginning of 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 Jesus' ministry, or Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry. Remember, Matthew's not even on the scene until chapter 9. So he's writing about events that he personally didn't even, he put it here for a reason. At the very beginning of his ministry, he wants us to understand that in his teaching, Jesus gives all evidence of his authority to order Our lives. In other words, Matthew chapter 5 is going to prove to be a tour de force of Jesus' authority to call each of us into account, to order our lives a certain way, and then to ultimately arbitrate whether or not you were compliant with his rule. This passage is about the authority of Jesus in action. Jesus' authority in this sermon, and that this sermon is pointing to His authority, is established in a number of ways. At the very beginning of verse one, it says that he went up on a mountain. Mountains are important. Where was Where did Moses meet with the Lord? On a mountain. He brings Israel in Exodus chapter 18 back to that mountain. And in Exodus 19, God appears where? On a mountain, Mount Sinai. As the Israelites are getting ready to enter the promised land, the law and its curses are pronounced from from twin peaks of mountains. Okay, mountains are where consequential things take place. And so in the book of Matthew, Matthew records seven times that Jesus is on a mountain. This is the first. I'm sorry, this is the second. The first is in Matthew 4, 8 where he's tempted. The second is here at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 14, 23. He's on a mountain praying in Matthew 15, It's where he feeds the multitudes. In Matthew 17, 1, that's where the transfiguration occurs. Matthew 24, 3, the Olivet Discourse is given. And then in Matthew 28, 16, that's where he's at when he gives the Great Commission. So he's on a mountain to convey the urgency and significance of what's happening here. Second, he assumes the posture of sitting. In our day and age, sitting actually is relaxed. Back in the day, and it's only kept nowadays, uh, quite frankly, in in like royal courts or stuff like that, where the king sits and everyone around them stands. Even in the early church, the tradition was that the speaker, the preacher sat, And everyone else stood. Famously, uh, Augustine would preach three-hour sermons in a seated position while his congregation stood. Wow, should we try that? No, we're not going to try that. Okay, Jesus isn't just sitting because he's tired. That's what he does. And even as you read throughout the gospel, he goes into a synagogue, he stands to read, but he doesn't open his mouth until he does what? He sits back down. And then it says he opens his mouth, and authority just exudes throughout the entire sermon. I mean, think about the hubris of a man opening his sermon, blessed are you. Who is he to say who's, who, who stands in right favor with God? when you're persecuted for my sake. I mean, think about the hubris of a man saying that. Think about the, the, the sheer audacity of a man saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Think about that. And then at the end, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, before we get to the end, he has the 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 chutzpah to say that the Old Testament in in claiming that he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying that they're talking about me. If you're a man, how how remarkably self-absorbed do you have to be to claim that the Bible is talking about me and I'm here to fulfill it? And then at the end, when he says that he, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And that he is going to tell people to depart from him to the, to the fires of hell. Because I never knew you. And then he just sums it all up. These words of mine, if you, if you don't listen to them, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. In other words, listening and obeying my voice is a matter of life and death. That's what Jesus comes down to and says. Now Jesus just, just says this. Not with pretension, and, and, and why and how does he say it? Because he has authority, and that authority is what we concluded with at the end of our reading in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. The people are in awe of this. That he would have the the nerve to speak such. Well, that's because he's the Messiah. He's the Redeemer who rescues and then rules as God's appointed king. So what does this mean for us? Well, it, it, it means that he has the right and he exercises that right to tell us what to do. Uh, understand that Jesus really does have the right to be the boss of you. He has the right to be the boss of me. He has the right and the prerogative, as he's going to show in, the old, in, in this sermon, to, to get to the quick, to show us the inside and to reveal our hearts in a way that make us squirm and make us want to reinterpret his words to avoid the ouch but understand he has the right to radically reorder our lives he has the right and he claims it to be the only legitimate foundation on which to construct a life so if you're going to live a life, and, and young people, especially, you have, you're have you now just at the dawn or the early spring of your life, and, and you have a, hopefully a, a many, many decades ahead of you, build your life carefully on the foundation of the lordship of Christ to govern every aspect of it. So if the sermon is principally about an assertion of the authority of Jesus, he's the Messiah, what's, what's the key to understanding it? Well, we are told in Matthew 4.17 that his preaching can be summarized with the statement, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember that repentance is turning from something to something. Something. So what what Jesus is doing here is he's he's showing you what a life of repentance looks like. This is the thing to which we are turning. The worldviews, the priorities, the interpretations, the traditions that we've been raised with need to be filtered through the authority of his word. And this is what it looks like to live a life of repentance in his kingdom as one of his. This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is full of ethical imperatives. There are 50 ethical comparatives in these three chapters, 50. 50 do this, don't do that. 50 be this, don't be that. 50 ethical imperatives. There's very little gospel. These 50 imperatives are law. He's telling you how to live. He's telling you how to prioritize your life. He's telling us the way things should flow. You see, he's giving you a fleshed out picture of what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. So now, finally, how do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I just said that in its construction, it's presented as primarily law. Law means anything God requires of us. Gospel is anything God does for us. Okay, This is law, primarily. Since it is law we interpret it best by keeping in mind what is the purpose of law. There are three. This is where Lutheranism goes goes awry. It it only wants to focus on one of the three purposes of the law, okay? One of the purposes of law is to point us to Jesus, that we need a savior, to, to humble us, to show us and continually remind us that you cannot save yourself. And that is true. You cannot save yourself. And, and just when you think that you've kept the commandments of God, you turn to the Sermon on the Mount, and you see that Jesus it up, ratchets it up to the nth degree so that even the most small inclination of the heart becomes some measure of imperfection. And so, against the hubris of man and our idolatrous hearts, this passage continually points us back to our own inability to be perfect. And we need a savior. That is true. But that's only one purpose of law. It is true that as a king, he's exercising his prerogative to, to give law here, to clean up under misunderstanding to give whole new instruction, to give new revelation. He's establishing the rules. And one purpose of that, in addition to having us see our inability to be perfect, is, well, it restrains evil. Think about this. We, we are so privatized. We think in terms of what's going on in our hearts, on only our hearts. But imagine a society... A society, a group of people, where they, where they honor this in their policy. Imagine a place where people take seriously marriage. Where they take seriously helping the poor. Where they take seriously being uh, turning the other cheek. It's a, it's a better place. The, these shows that we see in Hollywood depict this dystopian future or place where, where nobody's turning the cheek, and everybody, I mean, if you if you so much as insult somebody, you gotta be prepared to pay for it with your life. What a horrible place to live. This, this passage where we're taught to restrain anger, where we're taught to uh to control and subdue lust and it's the foundation for a for a wonderful society and i will say that in the church as we live out this ethic internally and then in society of our church churches should increasingly be places where the visible ethic of the kingdom is manifest and that's part of what it means to be salt and light that the people are able to see hey they're different That's exactly what Israel was, meant to be. Hey, they're different. There should be a huge sense of that in the church. Hey, they're different. Here, their marriages are honored. Here, their tempers are controlled. Here, the poor are helped. But that's not all. Because this passage And its third element of what the law is for is to show us a guide for how we can live in such a way that we please our Father. Remember, we were created to image God. We were created as God's image. We are called by his name. We are being recreated in the image of our Savior by the work of the Holy Spirit And this behavior here, this set of priorities here, this this character demonstrated here, this is what pleases our Father. You want to live in a way that, that brings maximal visible glory to God in this world? Reflect His character. And this is what the sermon shows us how to do. So, yes. It points us to our need for a savior. Yes, when implemented, this contributes to a positive and flourishing society in the restraining of evil and the promotion of good. But individually and and as as created beings, it's fundamentally an inside look into how we can please our father because he has made us to be his image. Indeed, we're Christ's image. And so brothers and sisters, This passage is wonderful. Keep the big picture in mind as you look at any of its individual parts. Keeping the big picture in mind will prevent you from absolutizing any one passage over against the rest of Jesus' teaching. This passage is wonderful. It's transformative. And we will be looking at it in more detail starting next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for accepting as sufficient his work on our behalf. Lord, we ask that we would be obedient, responsive, faithful, and thankful. Because Jesus has given us life. And he hasn't just given us life, he's given us a guide. So grant that we would follow it faithfully. In our Lord's name we pray it. Amen.